Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by the Campfire Poetry Project. This is something I've been waiting for for a long time. Produced by Monticello Park Productions, the Campfire Poetry Project turns classic poems into short films. It breathes new life into the original text, and it recontextualizes these poems, revealing how the issues that the artists were concerned with back in the day are as relevant now as they ever were. If you're looking for short-form creative inspiration on the Internet, look no further. And know this, to create more of these works... The Campfire Poetry Project needs the help of artists and independent art lovers everywhere to learn more, to see the films already produced, and to learn how to make a tax-deductible contribution to the project. Please visit campfirepoetry.com. That's campfirepoetry.com. Hey everybody, how you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. My name's Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I appreciate you listening. I'm here in Los Angeles and I have Emerson Whitney on the program today. He is the author of a memoir called Heaven, available now from McSweeney's. Heaven is a meditation on mothers, self, and trans identity. Them calls it, quote, the trans memoir for everyone. Heaven was named a best book by the AV Club, Paper Magazine, Lit Hub, Miss Magazine, Refinery29, and the Seattle Times, and more. Heaven by Emerson Whitney. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton & Company, publisher of the memoir, This is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire by Nick Flynn. It's a darkly beautiful, mesmerizing work from the author of Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, 
and the ticking is the bomb. This is the night our house will catch fire is a breathtaking work of spare lyricism and astonishing insights. It recounts Flynn's 1960s childhood and his attempts to understand his mother. This is a rare book that deals openly with marriage and childhood trauma and confronts some of our deepest ethical dilemmas. This is The Night Our House Will Catch Fire, the new memoir by Nick Flynn, available now from W.W. Norton and Company. My guest today is Emerson Whitney. His new memoir, Heaven, is available now from McSweeney's. It is superb and enlightening. I truly enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I feel like, you know, my hope is that this is a useful conversation between a cis, white, male, named Brad, and a trans, queer human being named Emerson Whitney. I feel like uh, my understanding of this stuff, if I'm being perfectly honest, is a work in progress. And I'm grateful to Emerson for having this conversation for that very reason, uh, and for writing this book for that very reason. Uh, I need to get wiser, and the book and the conversation helped me. I hope it'll help you too. So here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Emerson Whitney. It does seem like more of a swirl than anything linear. Like I noticed that actually it's almost like um, it's almost like a little hologram now. And so instead of just seeing the memories as as I was seeing them, I now see them with like the book cover overlay. <laughs> and it's like it kind of flashes back and forth in a way that is is lovely. Um, but yeah, I don't know if it's like fully, like, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting to think of what transpires when one publishes because, um, you know, it does sort of feel like I, I took something out and put it into the world. And in another way, it feels like I put something in myself as well. I, it's confusing. It's like, um, I don't know. There's there's a really cool process I think here where I'm really trying to to give it up. So it almost like transforms immediately when it's it's no longer mine. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know, one of the main themes of the book and uh, something that I find super interesting um you know, outside of the context of gender identity uh, into a like a broader um like into a broader uh, inquiry is just this idea of self and like, what is a self? And I love how you approach it and how open you are in questioning it and picking it apart and getting into research and including, um, you know, other voices and schools of thought. Like it really feels like you're along for the ride, not only in terms of the personal story that you're telling, but also in terms of the, like the intellectual approach that you're taking to trying to sort it all out. Yeah, <laughs> that is the hope for sure that it's that kind of kaleidoscope. Um, yeah, just because that, that's sort of how it's always uh, existed in my own mind and in my framework for understanding. So that's just sort of how it came out. Well, but I think too, you know, that sometimes when I'm reading about this stuff and listening to conversations or reading dialogues on social media around these kinds of issues, people can be, I find a lot more certain in their presentation of w what things are and how, what they mean. And, um, I, I feel like there are a lot of open questions 
about, say, um, gender. Like, where is it in the body? You know, you do this great, there's this great passage about blood, and I'm going to paraphrase it badly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found that really resonant. I, I f- I'm really fascinated with this idea of self and how, you know, I think in our day-to-day reality, we tend to think of it as this fixed entity when when you start to root around into the science, it's anything but. Yes, I I would certainly agree with that. And I think that, yeah, that passage you're talking about is certainly one of my favorite in the book, actually, in it. Um, I'm referencing Kim Tallbear's work on the semiotics of blood and how there's sort of, you know, when we say blood, it's actually a stand-in in Kim Tallbear's um, equation is that it's really just... Um, it's a metaphor for heredity or a metaphor for um, the experience of culture, but it isn't literally anything. And that passage also talks about Castor Samania, um, a Kenyan long distance runner who was and is continually sanctioned by the International Athletic Association. I'm probably getting that acronym wrong, but it's the IAAF, um, I believe, that uh, she's continually being tested and um, sidelined literally because there are attempts to determine whether or not Castor is actually a woman in which, you know, there's no reason to question Castor for saying that, you know, she's and asserting that, that her womanness, um, it's actually her championness that is being uh, used against her in that way. So it's a really wonderful, there's a, there's a lot of wonderful, um, inquiry there, especially around like, you know, if we look and look into the body, there's really no definitive marker of femaleness, for example, it just doesn't exist. And it's sort of the same with a lot of these other cat, the, the range of categories that we find ourselves in, for example, you know, on the census or when I apply for a job or, you know, the bureaucratic ways that we are classified, none of those things actually live in the body. Um, We can talk about phenotype and we can talk about melanin and we can talk about things like that, but, um, but race and gender, it's really incredible when we determine that those categories are not fixed uh, in the ways that we we see them. I mean, racism for sure exists in a very in a very permanent feeling way, and so does um, gender discrimination and um, you know uh, uh, you know transphobia and um, and homophobia and all of those things, queerphobia. Like those things all really do deeply exist and are experienced and at the same time those categories are are way more fluid than i think we're even able to talk about because of that the the discriminatory nature of these conversations well yeah i see people who are like well if you have certain genitalia you're a man and if you have certain genitalia you're a woman and i think you know i think some people it's hard to make the mental leap when you start to discuss like the idea that it's not nearly as fixed, like that doesn't necessarily mean as much as, you know, we might have thought. And I'm thinking now of, uh, I think this is the argument that 
J.K. Rowling was making. I don't know if you're familiar Oof. with this. Did you Did you hear this? I mean, absolutely, yes. Unfortunately, or not, I did. I did hear this. So, and and again, I'm going to screw up the. I'm probably going to screw it up. But she was basically saying that her argument was some sort of feminist argument that if you have female yes. genitalia, you're a woman, and to claim womanhood, if you have what is traditionally thought of as male genitalia, it's actually an infraction upon some idea of, of feminism. I don't, I don't Sure. Yeah. That is a very old turfy argument. Um, and I would even say that it doesn't like the word argument doesn't really work there either, because what is the, you know, there's not like a side here. It's really, it's really just, it's sort of, um, irrefutable that there are not two sets of genitalia either. Um, Unfortunately, they are actually genitalia is, is as policed as gender, if not more policed. And the fact that there are the that there is the assumption that there are two sets of genitalia really is an erasure of all these intersex folks who have unwanted surgeries at birth. And it's really vast, actually, and an important area for us to think about that just like there are not really two sets of uh, genders in that way, there really are not two sets of genitalia either. And the and that kind of middle space is so heavily policed in all these angles um, that it's really it's really quite dramatic, actually. Um, And that policing bleeds over, obviously, into all these other areas that we're talking about. But yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, um, I, I don't even really like to make the equation between gender and genitalia because it doesn't, it's not an equation that really works. Um, they don't spin on each other in that same way. So, hmm. so yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the, oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Um, I think too, that your book is about identity in the sense of, uh, heredity and the connections that we have with family and how I think sometimes we can misperceive our separateness or even, you know, if we have troubled relationships with family members, we can sometimes want to enforce a separateness that can never be there. Like there's an ins- inextricability to our relationships with our with our parents and with our siblings and with anybody with whom we share a blood relation and um i think that your book is kind of a lovely meditation on that you know the relationship that you have with your mom and with grammy which by the way my kids call my mom grammy so i was constantly oh, nice. like <laughs> i was constantly like uh, thinking you know of my mom as i was reading but um you know I, you, this book seems to be a real 
exercise in thinking about that and coming to terms with those relationships. Absolutely. And I think, you know, all that we're talking about really loops in there because I've certainly spent a lot of my time questioning what it meant to sort of be a family member and what it means to be a participant in the systems that were laid out for me immediately. And um, I also have looked at my my mom, this maternal line, and my grandma as as a map. And so I've been curious, like, what their map was and if we're using the same map and how all that works. Um, you know, it doesn't feel like every single member of my family got that map. So I was always like, huh, this is the one I got. What does that mean? And... Certainly, there are way more questions than answers here, but, you know, it's definitely, it is a meditation on sort of like epigenetic passing down um, and also literal passing down. And certainly, it doesn't need to be blood either. I'm not related to Hank in the book, um, but he, he, he's, a, he's a node on my map as well. And like, you know, what makes, what makes the story of, of a person, I guess, through these other nodes is certainly something I'm hanging out with. Yeah. when you refer to your map, you just mean like the, the terrain of your life, like not necessarily just the genetics of your, uh, of your existence, but just like the, all the different, the places that you were raised and all the people in your immediate orbit. Totally. And just the, and the conception of like, yeah, how am I not a collage then is something I often think about. And just also the, I feel like the, the fate of it all, like to whom you were born, where you were born, the rand, what seemingly random circumstances of who you meet along the way, where you go to school, all those accidents of fate that form a person. It, I am increasingly skeptical of any idea or any notion that we are like that we have much control over what the hell's going on. <laughs> uh, I don't want to like abdicate. I don't want to like, uh, you know, have, I don't want to, what's the word I'm looking for? Like not take responsibility for my life, you know, like where it's just like a complete hands off the wheel situation. But so much of what happens is completely out of our hands. Yeah. And I think, I mean, in some ways that is part of the fulcrum of the text in terms of like, I think one of the threads I hear people really calling out to me when they're reading it these days is like, you know, the compassion for your mom is really um, overflowing in the book and people seem to really be responding to that. And, you know, I, I've been trying to articulate that basically the way that the text works is, is that kind of um, push toward understanding and knowing that she literally did everything she could. Like I have no, I, I really, I really look at my mom as this kind of like unfolding fern thing. And she just unfolded in that exact sort of patterned way. And so did I in, in relationship. And there are so many ways for me to tell myself stories that make my day harder in response to my upbringing, but I can also look at it with ways that make my day actually more ebullient. And so I'm choosing that track in a sense. Um, and that's probably really the only choice I have is I get to choose the stories that I tell myself. 
And I think my favorite part of the book is that what is revealed is a true reveal that I'd started out this process not really being able to look at it with as much compassion as I do now. And in the process of writing it and coming to understand really my relationship with these people, I did come to a greater level of compassion, which just means that like the love became um, more, uh, more, I guess, unselfish in a sense. Like I don't need anything. I just love them. And that's always what I've wanted to, to articulate. And writing is so cool because it reveals my thinking. And that really is my thinking. So what you're reading is that change in me, which I think is pretty cool. That's about as much as you could ask for from a, the writing of a book. Yeah, I, I agree. I love reading books that do that. Yeah, but I mean, also just like in terms of being an artist and spending time on a project, like the payoff sometimes can be a little bit more nebulous. Like I think like to arrive at a deeper compassion for your your mom and family and, and to get to a place of more solidity around that, like that's a that's a worthwhile way to spend your time. I agree. And I think I love this character-based art form in a way because it really is, um, for me, a mediated version of my reality. Like, I just am experiencing things, but I get to, at at any point in the day, I, you know, I'm moving about thinking and, and kind of writing, you know, and it, even if I'm not actually using a, a pen or anything, I'm I'm sort of writing. Like, I'll I'll walk over to the window and I'll like write in my, I'll write something in my head and then I'll go actually put it into this character format. Um, but without that kind of um, reflection and reflexiveness, um, I don't know if I, if, if it would feel as solid as it does these, these understandings. So I'm, I'm super grateful for that. Let's, I want to talk to you about the way that the book is rendered and the kind of, collagey nature of it and the way that you can you know the as a reader you can really i can really feel you thinking on the page which i love um but in terms of how it was actually composed you know the the ways in which you were researching and then integrating that research into the text and weaving it together and um can you talk about the decision making process around how the book turned out at Sure. Um, I spent a lot of time writing out these vignettes. Um, I was really inspired by Justin Torres's We the Animals. And um, I really loved how that book moved uh, with the fulcrum of these scenes. And I kept every time I read his work, particularly that book, I was like, oh, yeah, I can my I can I can match. Um, my feeling of the te of his text with a feeling of my own experience and I was like inspired to sort of write those out like that and then um, I've always been really interested in projects that move between modes I struggle to write things that are more uh, unifocused or even uniformatted I just like seem to I like don't even want to for some reason like I'm working right now on this other project and I keep putting it in like I keep putting like parts of it in verse just because I can't even I don't want to look at all it all one way I want it to look different all the time for some reason I don't know what it is in me that requires that but it, it does seem a requisite for me to enjoy the work um, and so that's sort of that was sort of how it became a thing I, I didn't really 
want it to just be those vignettes. So I looked at the grout. Um, Mady Schutzman was a professor of mine at one point, and she always talked about, like, what's the grout? And so I, I would look at the place between those tiled pieces of vignettes, and I would actually put in a bunch of what I'm reading. And I, I had the great benefit of reading some just beautiful work throughout that time period, and it, I just wove it in. And so the grout would be what you're reading? Is that what the, the grout refers to? Um, I think the grout would be the thinking between the images. Like, like uh, the question I always ask myself is like, why do I want this image here? Because they were like, my focus for a long time was making beautiful images in my work. I just really liked doing that. My first book, I was just like, I want it to be beautiful. And I really love it when the language is so rich in a way and also washed like I really like to wash it so all you're getting is is like a tremendous amount of efforting to make sure that every single word heightens that image whether it be a smell or a sight or a sound it's I, the synesthetic quality of images to me in in writing is like my jam so I love doing that. And that was my focus again for a really long time. But then I started to ask myself, why that image? You know, it's like I could be chiseling anything out of this enormous language that I have access to. Um, why am I choosing this chiseled thing? And the grout is the answer. So each time I would put in an image, I would try to answer it with some thinking. And I really like thinking through thinkers. Um, I really love, I love theory. I love words. Um, I love experimentation and theoretical experimentation really, it makes me happy. Um, I was somebody that grew up in special ed and I didn't have a lot of access to, to theoretical engagement when I was younger. And so, you know, my process was actually sort of a, a reclamation of the possibilities for, for theory and writing that looks like that, um, so that's sort of it's all that's also a filter on the lens in a sense is is I really want to play with accessibility here. Um, personally, I find that sometimes academic theory is canonical and cishet white European Eurocentric European descended settler descended um, and I actually know that there is so much incredible theoretical engagement happening way beyond any of those communities and actually the richness of it is just so tremendous and I wanted to play with um, the ways that we can receive that kind of thinking because I do believe that theory is this enormous tool for for making new worlds essentially um, and to have that in there as that little kind of, you know, even when I'm talking to you, I'm picturing it sort of like almost like a, a loop, you know, there's like loops. It's almost like when you zip a zipper, there's like the two sides and I, I zipped it with the subjective eye, but the two sides are really these, this kind of imagistic quality. And then, and then the theory. Well, and I think too, you know, you talk about theory being a lot of times canonical or too much of it being removed from, um, you know, the realities of a wider range of people. But I think too, that sometimes it can be hard to read. It's not always like academic writing and theoretical writing is not always great for the lay person. And so 
a lot of times what I love about writers like yourself who are working in is memoiristic a word? <laughs> I it, think we could say that. I yeah. just said imagistic. Yeah. I don't know. Let's make stuff up. But I just think yeah. that it's great. So I, I really always uh, appreciate it when I'm reading somebody who has done heavy lifting as a reader and who is then filtering what they've learned into their text and rendering it in a language that is washed, as you say. Uh, I love that mm-hmm. way of putting it. You know, it's a great service, um, especially um, with a book that's dealing with big ideas and teasing things apart that are complex and, you know, trying to make it um, digestible. Yeah. And for me, it's honestly, it's fun. <laughs> it's really fun. And so I, I do... I do think like when I first took a theory class, we read like the rhizome or something. And I was, I was the person in the class raising my hand being like, why does this have to be so inaccessible? And, and actually I had the great benefit of talking with one of my favorite poets and theorists ever about this, uh, Fred Moten. And Fred was like, it's, they're doing a word experiment. So it's like poetry seems inaccessible, but sometimes the only way we can get to a new thought is by experimenting with this language and so it it looks like quote-unquote like hard but actually if we understand that the writer or the thinker is trying to do this thing where they pull the rug up on our common sense notions of what these things are these sort of building blocks of our day like gender or sexuality or ethnicity or family like there those are giant blocks of belief systems that we kind of interact with all day long and in order to sometimes pull up the rigidity of that block we have to play with the words um i often think about how cool it is that there are a huge variety of alternative pronouns and definitely um you know i think about in the romance languages that use um gendered Uh, a gendered lexicon throughout that there is just an enormous amount of experimentation going on with um, with fashioning different ways of making things genderless or exploring what gender means in the language and in that exploration we actually make room for new ways of being I just I just think that's awesome yeah you know as you were talking about poetry you know that kind of pulls the rug out I was thinking, my mind immediately leapt to the issue of language and gender and the public conversation that is ongoing um, around how we talk about these things and how we self-identify. And uh, I think that is something, you know, it it doesn't feel anywhere close to done. Let's put it that way. I feel like it's a very fluid situation and there's a lot of learning that's happening um, for a lot of people, myself included. And I'm wondering, uh, as somebody who has lived experience, you know, at close range with these, um, you know, these experiences and issues, if the writing of this book brought you to greater clarity around these issues, or was it something that you had a firm handle on prior to sitting down to write? Zero percent more clarity, always more questions, no idea. It's my answer for you. I just, I personally, I think, um, you know, I don't know. I love that it, I love that I have continually more questions about the body and its relationship to this sort of um, functional and not so functional categorization. Um, I just don't, I I really don't um, 
I really don't have more answers. And the older I get, the less solid it is, truly. So, well, how do like language wise, like how do you identify? I mean, I say I'm trans and I'm queer. And I don't really love any of the pronouns. I prefer they or he, but mostly I like he because it's sort of, I do not have a, I don't have a great explanation for why. And that's sort of, I think that's just, that's, that's something I personally, I live with the unknown of that in some ways. I think maybe I like it because it, it almost, when I show up, there's like a drumming that happens between uh, w that word and how I'm seen and I like that dissidence um, but I also I definitely don't speak for pretty much I literally can only speak for myself when I say that and I also know that um, you know that dissidence is quite dangerous and because I operate in the world as uh, a European descended person for the most part and someone who reads as white that I do not experience danger in that way when there's that dissidence in the same way um as a bunch of my you know friends that are family who experience a tremendous amount of danger in that dissidence and then there's also folks like i i really encourage everyone to watch major it's on uh it's on uh amazon prime now not that i ever plug amazon prime but it is on there um and it wasn't accessible for a really long time in that way so i that's where I'm, I'm directing people to it um but it's a really wonderful documentary on uh miss major griffin gracie who is someone i really 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 look up to and uh miss major there's also a short film um made by tourmaline a director and um of uh, some other folks in the community who made this short film that's also available online um and uh, in that film, Major talks about at a certain point, she changed all her identification back to male uh, just, I think, in her 70s because she was like, I'm a trans person. I want people to love me for that. I don't I don't need everything to say female anymore. You know, and that was she says in that film that it's her way to her personal way of like, quote unquote, striking back. Um, and I think the older I get, the more I just notice that. Um, nothing really matches. Nothing really works in that sense for me. But, um, but yeah, I just I keep I keep walking. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, in your book there are sections where, um, you know, the, there's a section I'm recalling where they're ta you're talking about how, you know, sometimes trans people or you had grappled with this idea that like the smothering mother can lead people to uh, become gender fluid. Am I, am I recollecting this well, properly? Well, that's a, that's a Robert J. Stoller conception and, and, and sort of a larger conception, I think, that that um, is beyond his work even. But it was the idea, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those um, more, I guess, diagnostic angles on transness. I mean, that's really something I, I contend with all the time is like, you know, the, that's really the core of the book was that embarrassing, really, truly embarrassing question of like, am I, why do I spend so much time 
feeling like this is diagnosable or is per, um, or is the result of some childhood consequence. I don't think all trans people think like that. Um, certainly, I mean, I, I would doubt, I would be shocked if all trans people did anything, <laughs> but we are not a homogenous group at all. But certainly I feel like that drumming, again, I keep saying that today, but the, that drumming has just been so consistent in my life that I would be like, oh, is this this way? And my grandmother in the book lovingly, just innocently asks me, are you this way because your mom liked your brothers more? And it, it still is hysterical to me because that to her wasn't anything. You know, she was just sharing kind of a passing thought really or a passing concern. But but I I can't really live with that concern because it, it doesn't it doesn't allow me to actually step into my life with a different story. Um, I don't, I don't want to give away the end of the book, but that's sort of the, the thing I'm getting at, at that, at the end, which is that I don't want to live my life with a singular version of past events. It doesn't work. It's too complex. So I want to wear my selfhood like a loose garment. And I know that when I experience reality with that selfhood as sort of loose, not only am I more useful, like I can actually help other people, but also I can experience um, all these things we're talking about. Like I can experience compassion. I can experience um, a different level of fulfillment personally because, again, I am not really locked in a story that I didn't even engender. I just, I just, I just happened into it. When you talk about wearing the self more loosely, does that just mean like taking yourself less seriously? Like, I, 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 I know, what you, I know what you're getting at, but I think it's actually worth like drilling down into that a little bit more. Um. Yeah, I think I. Um. I don't. I think it's a little more like. Um, because it's very serious, actually. You know. It's very serious for some of us. Our identity politics are very serious. They have very serious consequences. Um, how I show up in the world and my subject position both means a lot to others and uh, has meant a lot from others to me. It just it's there's not really much I can do about it. Um, I notice when I wear a mask these days that I do get a lot more. Like I was at I was somewhere yesterday and they were like this person's next or something. And I was like, right, this is kind of great. Like no one, no one yesterday and my hair is quite long right now, which I'm enjoying. And so sometimes I'm noticing that, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but sometimes people are a little bit looser with their conception of me. And I really deeply appreciate that because when I'm sort of interacting with other human beings and I'm immediately figured, like I'm immediately, um, uh, the attempt is to to understand or conceive of my body and my selfhood at once is such a common thing. Like, you know, we see a human being coming toward us and we immediately try to understand who that person is, whether or not they're, you know, a, a friendly person, all this stuff. And in that just split second moment of of an attempt to understand, I think there's just very little understanding. Actually, there's none. So I'm talking about the looseness there with like, what if I experience you like you were a poem, like you were an event and you didn't just get figured immediately. Yeah. I kind of like the masks. I got to say, like, I know that they can be, a, <laughs> they can be a little bit onerous in the summer and the heat. And if you're trying yeah. to exercise or something, but 
something about being out in public, like walking my dog even, and having a mask on, like it sort of takes the pressure off of something. I don't know what it is. Like people can't see your facial expression. You don't have to like, I don't know. I Maybe is this strange that I like this? <laughs> I don't think so. I think we're really terrified of each other, honestly. And I think that's sort of what I'm talking about in a way that like, you know, I, I don't, I, well, I could go into this whole philosophical angle, but I'll keep it loose, which is that, you know, basically when, when someone shows up in my, in my like sphere of any kind, I have, I feel like I have immediately have to respond to that entity. And, you know, sometimes that's really scary. Like actually my, I'm right now in a place where you can kind of, you know, you can see me, I'm in a little bit, a mini panopticon right now. And I'm in a really bustling kind of spot. And my neighbor, who's very nice, he he just came up just right to the end, like right where my door is. And my screen was open because it's really hot today. And um, I closed it for you. So I'm I'm sweating right now, but it's worth it for thank, your sound quality. Thank you. Um, thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. But the but he just was right there and he was like, how are you liking your AC? And he was joking because he knows I doesn't I don't have air conditioning. And I was like, oh, man, you know, I made a joke back, but it was totally startling, you know, and he's a very nice person. But I was like, wow, I could have been in any sort of situation right now with him. Like, I really wasn't ready to have anyone there. And even if I'm walking the dog, similarly to you, I, I still have that reaction actually to the same exact person. Like he'll he'll talk to me while I'm walking my pup and uh, I'll immediately be like, oh, OK, I'm going to, you know. I'm going to change my direction of my gaze. I will look at this person. I will interact. And I think sometimes it, it feels like a responsibility that none of us really want. And part of what, I, what I'm, I guess, talking about when I'm thinking loosely um, or, or hanging out with selfhood as a, as a loose garment is more like, yeah, I mean, what happens when I drop all my thinking and I just engage? And actually, it was super nice to say hello to someone today because it's coronavirus and I don't really talk to a whole bunch of people in person right now. And so, yeah, I took him as a as a kind visitor, um, even if it was a little bit jarring. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like I'm uh, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. People say hello to each other there. And I've had to mm -hmm. learn sometimes the hard way over the years, like living in a city that it's not quite the same in Los Angeles. People don't say hi as much. And so I think reflexively I'm inclined to say hello when I pass by somebody, but other days, like, I, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it's better just to keep your eyes down. <laughs> uh, and that tension is sort of what I'm talking. I love that tension. I think is really interesting to me of like, what do I do? Here's another person. I don't know them at all. I don't know who they are at all. What do I do? I mean, the folksy side of me would be like, well, you just say hello to your neighbor. Like, hi there. How are you doing today? Like, you just that. But then what if this person, you know, you live in a big city, like you said, you don't know who they are. You don't know what's going on with them in their head. And maybe it's better just to keep your mask on. <laughs> just keep walking. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I mean, and, 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 you know, safety certainly is a huge privilege and the presumption of safety is a huge privilege. And I'm always just interrogating I'm interrogating all that. And I guess what I'm sort of showcasing right now is what my brain does all day. I'm an overthinking human being. And if it weren't for the process of writing, I think I would be much more, um, I would be filled with a greater ache. I think it's really nice for me to just write it down because I'm thinking like this all day. Hmm. Uh, I want to I wanna get to the thinking 
issue that you just raised and like the research, uh-huh. the, the, the overthinking, the research, the processing things through writing. But before we get there, I want to just, you know, ask one more question or pose one more thought with regard to the looseness of identity and, you know, all the stuff that we've been discussing. And it has to do with the ways in which people arrive at whatever sexual or gender identity that they happen to arrive at. And I think your book portrays this really beautifully is how much mystery there is inside of it. Um, And I think sometimes people get uncomfortable with mystery in this life and with this not knowing and with this uh, fluidity. And I'm going to, I guess it's kind of, it's like a two-part thought. You know, the first is that I have a friend who um, has a child who was born, I guess, conventionally as a boy, but who uh, identified from a very young age as a girl, which is very obvious, you know, like wanted to wear dresses, uh, wanted to be called by a girl's name. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it was just all there, very young, right out of the chute. And I find there's something sort of uh, like wondrous and super mysterious and even like spiritual about that. Uh, and then I also can at least get into frames of mind where I'm willing to accept the idea that say, if you had an abusive experience in childhood with men, that you that might color your sexual preference as you get into adolescence and adulthood, and you might might not want anything to do with men. Like that at least seems feasible to me. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I feel like there's room for all of that. It, like does that strike a chord? Am I am I thinking in a clear way? I mean, I'm, I I definitely hear both of those uh, strands of thought regularly in pop culture and just in general. So yeah, I don't think you're alone in thinking those things at all. Um, And certainly just from my perspective, um, I I appreciate the the word mystery that you used there. And, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of work lately on thinking about, like, I'm just going to use the word alterity because I'm I love that word actually, but you know, it's something like unassimilable. Basically it's, can, it's a piece that can just remain forever unclear within a larger concept or within just in general, like it's just something that literally can't be assimilated. Um, and at least that's how I personally am enjoying defining that word right now. Um, but I was reading a lot about uh, the ocean and storms. I've been thinking a tremendous amount about, um, what it means to kind of be like thrashed around, um, uh, just, yeah, what that means. And, uh, there's a bunch of books that are like, you know, okay, well, you know, we're going to figure out the last mysteries of the sea and we're going to figure like, we will find, we will find this out. Um, the sea is particularly interesting to me for some reason, because, um, I am always fascinated by actually you are you in LA? You're in the, are I you am, in, yeah. Okay. So there's that app about Malibu beaches. I don't know if you've explored that at all, but you can get this app and it's like it'll explain to you where you can sort of sneak into the beach. And as far as any at least US legislation goes, every beach uh below the high tide mark is, that's you it's for anyone you can't own uh you can't own the water right now. So, and I'm saying right now because 
you know, who knows? But, um, but I've always found that really interesting. Like you can't have it, you can't have that place. And actually in relationship to my, even my appendix or whatever, they have no clue what causes appendicitis. They barely, and they, I mean like this amorphous doctor body that I'm imagining don't know what the appendix actually does. Like I just heard the other day that it like is a magical pouch that, holds good bacteria so if you have something bad happen in your gut it like superheroes out a bunch of good bacteria to help you but there there's no consensus on any of this stuff so the fact that we think that we could understand some of these other aspects and we could make them concrete and make decisions based on them like that's absurd to me there are so many things that we literally don't get to know and i love that we don't get to know it um you know, I, I, I'm, I'm continually wanting to run back into the burning building that is this not knowing all the time. I just want to do that. And I'm okay with not knowing. Um, and I would love it if more folks were okay with not knowing because I think it would make the world a bit safer for all of us. I was just going to say, you know, I love it too. I, like, I, like I'm actually much more calm inside the not knowing than I am inside of any sense of certainty uh, and I think that, especially when it comes to sexual or gender identity, so much of the mostly male violence that we see, um, you know, stemming from homophobia or whatever, I, I think is like, this is my theory on it, but I think so much of it comes from a, an innate sense of this fluidity within oneself and a, that this deep fear <laughs> And this desire for things to be fixed and certain, and it just kind of, you know, manifests as rage whenever, um, you know, it sort of rears its head or one is, one is forced to confront or feel that fluidity, even if it's not something that a person is capable of articulating to oneself. Like, am I, I hope I'm making sense of this properly, but, uh, I just think that I've, I've joked before on this show that like, you know, I'm, I'm hetero, like, you know, if, and if you're on a 10 scale and 10 is like super hetero, like the ultimate hetero guy or whatever, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm probably like what, six and a half. Like I'm, I've got some feminine to me, but if I were on a desert Island with another guy and we were just stuck there, like at some point I'd probably go for it. Like, you know, I think you have to be willing to admit these things to yourself. And I don't think some people can do that. Uh, yeah. Am I crazy? <laughs> I would say, I would say again, so many of these thoughts I've heard and, you know, I actually am, um, I'm always, I, I, I end up in these conversations actually quite a bit with folks who seem to share your subject position. So like, you know, I had a straight cis guy nurse, white straight cis guy nurse actually who was super kind and we were, you know, we were sort of stuck together in a way because um, I – well, I was stuck. Um, he could sort of come and go, but he was supposed to check on me all the time, so he was he was coming in. And I, he was just great with my pronouns, which was super helpful to me in, in a – in a hospital setting it's a dangerous place to be if if with an aberrant body in some ways um so usually i'm really in super hyper defense mode and i was really grateful that this person had obviously had a conversation with somebody who had taught him um something and it was great that he was embracing it and usually those people that can teach people like that something are people like you um 
usually they can't hear from me. Why would, you know, how could I be heard? So um, I appreciate it when folks in your subject position are expanding your own understanding of what it means to, to inhabit masculinity. And actually, you know, there's a lot of movement right now to call it masculinities because, you know, there's so many different ways to express any kind of embodiment and particularly gender in these forms. So, and again, they don't lock on sexuality. So you can totally be somebody who would occupy femininity. And actually, I think it's super helpful to embody all these energies. Why not? Um, so if we're embodying all these energies, it doesn't mean that your sexuality has any reflexiveness to it um, or is, it, is, is measured in response to it. Your sexuality can do whatever it does too. Um, you know, and there's just so many beautiful examples of, of that in our world. And you could look to the natural world, quote unquote, and see that there's a lot of, there's a lot of information out there. There's a great book called, uh, I believe I'm going to say it wrong, I think, but it's the mindful masculinities workbook. Um, that is a anthology put together. It's on AK press. Um, it's, uh, collated by a bunch of trans people. Rocco, I think put it together, but there's a bunch of trans people in there really great folks and they there's like little squares for you to fill out like you know what is what does masculinity look like for me today you know and um i think some of these uh dominant positions don't get questioned so in the book i mentioned that karen barad who's a queer physicist who i really love her work she was saying nobody's like where did where did heterosexuality come from? Or where did cisgenderism come from? Everyone's just asking, where did trans come from? Where did queerness come from? And that's, I think, one of the core issues that we're talking about. We probably could be asking, where did all this stuff come from? And we typically don't interrogate dominant positions. So I appreciate it when anybody who's occupying that dominant position is interrogating it. And at least um, maybe expressing that interrogation to their community of other people who might be thinking along the same lines because it does make room for those of us in the targeted position. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that, and, and like you talk about embodying, you know, and, and if somebody is, uh, you know, if, if we're going to continue with this 10 scale thing, you know, if somebody is like super hetero, like, you know, like crushing beer cans against his head, like screaming at the television, watching football, like hetero guy, you know, you're still from a woman, like you still come from your mother's body. Uh, how could you not embody both the masculine and feminine impulse in some respect? Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it seems completely crazy to me to think of anybody who could conceive of themselves as, as being completely divorced from one of the polarities or whatever. And uh, I think it's, I think it's both logical and much wiser to conceive of oneself holding both in some respect. And, we could all use a little of both, right? Like women. Well, and I think that that's even, you know, that might really truly be a false binary even. There might not even be two. It might be really just, you know, I I, I look out into the fog a lot. And boy, is it gorgeous when this, the colors of the light are changing because of the time of day through the fog. It is so unintelligible what I'm looking at, but it's it's crystalline. It's in, it's gorgeous um, and it's multi-layered, but it kind of looks like one layer. Like that's more for me what the experience of inhabiting a gender is. It doesn't really like if, you know, uh, this is something I do in my classes. It probably won't translate as well just over audio. But essentially, if you pulled out your cell phone charger right now, there's usually there's a part that's a ba that's the base that's often called the female part. 
and it it it's got a, it has an empty space so it's called the female part there's the other part that's supposed to go into that part that's called the male part you would never hold the male cord quote unquote and say that that cord is strong it's virile it's powerful <laughs> like those it wouldn't that doesn't make any fucking sense honestly and the other part of the cord you wouldn't say oh that's it's nurturing it's gentle it's kind that it's intuitive no, it's it, so if we think of the absurdity of that and place it onto bodies, like even when you use the example of this person's super hetero, how you know there isn't even a very clear way to determine that because the person that you just described who's crushing beer cans or whatever watching <laughs> football, that could be a trans, you know, that could be a person of any gender or any sexuality. And that's sort of how I see it is that. You know, this is we could talk about this forever, but this really is just a lens to see the ways that these blocks of our belief systems really are feel hard. They feel true. Like, you know, ideas look like truth. And sometimes they're really just ideas. And sometimes they are oppressive. Actually, a lot of the time they're oppressive. And so if you notice, if you look around and you notice that a group is being harmed by a larger system as a result of occupying a different position within that belief system, that's a trigger to know that there's something untrue about the system. And so that's what I'm constantly doing all day with gender and sexuality and all of these category, categories that we've been talking about, it, if someone hurting is a, is a group of people being systematically denied access because of this arbitrary positionality, that's a really important question to ask ourselves. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, what, what do you think like a sane, healthy approach like at the societal level looks like like it feels like it feels like we're really in the midst of grappling with all this and probably for for a large per percentage of the population like just beginning to grapple if they're grappling at all um but do you have a vision of of how things will look when people get their wits about them better about all this stuff and come to a healthier place in terms of understanding I mean, I just, and I guess this is why, you know, this is, um, this is why I occupy the space of, of creative writing is that even hearing you say that I want to take apart, like all the words you just said, I want to be like, well, what is, what is healthy being in this context? What is, you know, like, I really want to spend time with each of your words and I can't do that in the context of this kind of conversation. I can do that when I'm sitting with my writing utensil or whatever it is, um, because the truth is it's very complex yeah. and, and these are, and it's also not, it's really simple and it's really complex. And that sort of, um, that sort of movement of it is really just important. I think for people to witness and right now things are fixed and they've, you know, though it's on purpose. So if we understand that there, again, like I used the word system a minute ago, and when we look at, you know, systemic oppressive systems or systemic oppressiveness, it usually is it, it's 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 fashioned. So it's not like an organic thing. It's fashioned on purpose um, to make access for some and deny access for others. So, again, for those that occupy dominant positions, I think it's really important to just interrogate those systems and, you know, so many of us are working really hard to dismantle them. And, you know, if you want to join us, we'd love to have you. Yeah. 
Um, can you can you think of a like like what would be an example of a system that needs dismantling right now? That some oh my goodness, I mean just like <laughs> let's 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 because I think people listening might be like yeah I'll help dismantle, but like what's a let's give some some actual examples of systems that need to be dismantled or are hopefully in the process of being dismantled right now that are um, that are not doing us any good and that are hurting vulnerable people or a community. Absolutely. Yeah. I would direct us all to, um, uh, some other writers and thinkers. I would totally direct folks to, um, to, uh, Michelle Alexander's work, a new Jim Crow, for example, or 13th on Netflix. I would also love to direct people to Nell Irvin painters work. Um, the history of white people, which is just an incredible book. Um, the, the understandings of um, race in the United States that come out of that literature is really enormously important for all of us to know, um, you know, essentially um, racial categorization started via anti-blackness in the United States as a, as a way to maintain a system of enslavement, uh, constant and permanent enslavement for for essentially Afro-descended people, black people, and to understand that that system is 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 created uh, is, is super important. And it's actually the basis for how most of the Western world, I mean, you know, I could use I could use the word all probably um, uh, the basis of wealth has been. Uh, has been very directly related to this this enslavement, and um, this nation was built, at least, you know, from my understanding of my experience of reading and engaging with thinkers that I deeply admire, um, was built on stolen land and people. So until we can address the the ways that that has occurred and really think about, you know, I I mentioned at the beginning of this. Um, about, you know, actual material reparations that, you know, they, I don't, I don't see this, this world as, as, as really habitable until that, that um, is, is, is happening until there are real and permanent um, uh, reparations. Yeah. I've said that, like, I'm, I love hearing you say that. I've said that so many times on this, sh on this show in conversations around race and indigenous peoples like if we, I, you know i think hopefully the majority of us who want to live in a sane peaceful world um or some semblance of a sane peaceful world we have to get to a place of healing like genuine healing around these sins for lack of a better word you know the sin of slavery and of the stolen you know the stealing of land from indigenous peoples the all of it how could you ever possibly move on as a country and as a collective of people unless there's a a, a real meaningful apology made that goes beyond just like oh i'm sorry you know like we have to we have to try to make it right in a way that's concrete and how do you move on in the absence of that? How do you move forward to a better place in the absence of that? I don't see how. Yeah, and I would say too that the part of the reason there's not a moving on is because it's so it's it's right now it's ongoing. So you know, um, if if I go try to get a loan for a house in a community that's mostly European descended people, I will get that loan. If my friend who's Afro descended or an, uh, a, a descendant of enslaved 
Africans in the U.S. If my friend who's who's occupying the world as a melanated black person goes to try to get that same loan, they're not they It's a very there's a very high chance that they will not either be given the same rate as me or be given it at all. And that to me is is absolutely constant and ongoing. Also, it's so evident right now that, um, you know, the prison industrial complex is is this huge monolith that actually reinforces the enslavement that we're talking about. So until those direct systems, which also deeply impact trans people and particularly black trans femmes, until those systems are literally no longer in existence and no longer functioning, can like there's no there's really nothing else to do, at least in my understanding. And I hope that you know, my work may deal with different subjects because it's coming from my subject position. But I always hope that my work and my my being really, really does this undoing because I really I don't understand how else to operate in this in this way. Like we really do have to spend a tremendous amount of time and resources on on redistributing time and resources. So, you know. I don't know. That's just that's how I see it is that it's not over at all. Um, Just like there are enormous and active native communities in the U.S. And so the idea that this genocide happened and it's over is 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 problematic because, you know, even these communities that we're talking about are being extremely impacted by coronavirus here in Maine. um, I think I'm I'm going to get these figures wrong, but uh, there I believe uh, Afro descended people make up a very small percentage of Maine. But there uh, there's a 24 percent chance that if you are Afro descended in Maine, you have gotten coronavirus. There is there that is a that that is a result of systems as it's 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 deeply embedded in the ways that our healthcare works, our housing works, everything. So really, it's we're you know we're at we're like here in the in a certain time of the year they burn all the blueberry fields so that there can be new blueberry fields. <laughs> and I think you might know where I'm going here. Like we don't you know if it, it does seem like there has to be a great turning and. I don't want to live in a place that isn't functioning on the turn. I don't want to be anywhere that isn't working toward this. So no, I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. And I didn't mean to imply that like, it's like a big apology in retrospect for something that's like done. And, you know, we've washed our hands of, I think it's a, an important point to make that it's not only reparations for that, which happened in the past, but it's reparations and a changing and a turning of the systems that you describe that are in effect right now. Absolutely. And it really, you know, it really is, 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 a, uh, you know, the, it's really right now and it's, it's burning. And I would love for you to like, or like I'm saying, like, you know, there's so many great writers and thinkers who can speak to this way, way more effectively than me. Um, and yeah, I just, you know, if anybody wants to write me and get more information, I'm happy to do that and share like long, long resource lists and direct you to amazing people doing incredible work all the time on behalf of black trans folks and also, you know, indigenous folks and the communities that we're talking about right now. There's actually, to speak to what you just said, there's a interesting part of um, of Eula Biss's book, uh, Notes from No Man's Land. I don't know if you ever read that book, but it's cool. And she talks about Sorry Day in Australia. <laughs> 
and how there's like, do you know about Sardin? No, and I lived in Australia once. I, I missed it. Okay, I've never been there, but I read this book. <laughs> and that's, how, that's as close as I might get maybe ever. But uh, she writes about Sorry Day, and there's like an amazing song on YouTube that you can go look at about it, or like for I'm Sorry Day. But it's basically a day that was implemented by the Australian government, as far as my understanding, in response to Eulabis's work, um, as an apology for genocide against the indigenous peoples there. And, um, you know, she basically interrogates, like, how effective that is. And the song is, like, you know, it's just, it's kind of amazing because what does it actually mean to, to literally, like, give up a bunch of stuff? Because that's kind of what's being asked of European-descended and settler-descended people. Like, you kind of can't just be like, oh, no big deal, like, whatever, this was bad. But, ah, you know, it's really, like, literally, like, there has to be, like, a, a serious um, shift in, in basically wealth and, and the ways that that is accrued and, and distributed. So, right. Yeah. Right. No, I think that's a very important point. Like I've been reading about this issue here and there and, you know, and, and about just issues of, um, social justice, you know, uh, more broadly speaking, and that when we really get to a point where meaningful change happens, it's going to feel like oppression to a lot of, white European descended people. And that's how we're going to know when the change is meaningful <laughs> is when there's like real sacrifice and real shifts in terms of wealth and resources happening so that we can live in a more equitable society. And that's not something that a, a significant portion of the American population or maybe even the global population wants to hear. But I, I don't see, I don't see how to square it otherwise. You know, and I think there's a very strong case to be made that um, the resources as currently allocated are allocated and have been allocated unjustly for, you know, for centuries. So I hope we get there. I hope the turning that you're talking about happens, and I hope that it happens without too much violence or unrest. You know, I, I can't help but look to history sometimes and try to piece together how this kind of change might happen. And... I have hope, you know, I do think, you know, sometimes it can seem like change is a long way off or that it's never going to happen. And then a lot can happen all at once, uh, in ways that might surprise us. But do you have feelings on that? Do you have like a sense of optimism? Are you, it sounds like you do, but where do you, where do you feel we are? Do you think it's, it's imminent or do you think we have a long way to go? I mean, I, I definitely look to, um, I, I'm, I hope I'm quoting correctly when I'm saying this, but I believe it's Michelle Alexander who said, you know, um, racism in the United States is not a social ill or a moral failing. It's literally like not a bump in the road at all. It is the road. And so if, if it is the road, if it's the road that the U.S. was founded on, which again, like in my understanding is based on really stolen land and people, then yeah, there's, there there literally has to be some serious construction going on and um, like literally, you know, there has to be a, a whole, it cannot necessarily exist in the same way that I see it at this moment. And um, I'm just so grateful for these artists and thinkers and activists who I get to spend my life with and follow and learn from who teach me how to constantly uphold my values every single day and all that I do. And I hope you know, this book at least raises these questions. Like, it's cool for me that this is where we got in our conversation, starting with this text, because um, 
you know, again, I really do feel like it kind of does start and end here. There really isn't another conversation that I'm having either with myself or in general. Um, so, you know, in terms of like questions of, of attitude, I guess, because in the way it's your, you know, this is an attitude question. Um, I take a lot of, um, a lot of, I, I get a lot of energy. I glean a lot of energy from these incredible people who are doing work like this all the time. And again, who I get to be close to, I'm super grateful for, for this, you know, kind of cohort that I get to be part of. So, yeah, well, I mean, I think yeah. if you're going to be engaging with this stuff, which isn't always pleasant to engage with, I mean, I think when you're rooting around inside of uh, something like racism, <laughs> I think it can be easy to find yourself demoralized. And so I think it's wise to take comfort and to find strength in community and in like the good work of artists and uh, activists, as you said, you know, I, I think to, to, to go it alone would be setting yourself up maybe for, um, you know, a lot of personal darkness. Like we need each other in a fight like this. Absolutely. And, you know, as people, you know, when we're occupying dominant positions, um, when we're, when we're in that position, we do live with inherent blind spots. So like there are just literally um, things about aspects of a person's day who's, for example, racialized as black in the U.S. I will never understand that. I will never know what that's like. And so I literally it's just like driving in a car where I have a blind spot and I cannot see it. So I personally am choosing to constantly wrench my head in the direction of my blind spots. And I really encourage other folks to do that too when we're occupying dominant positions. I also occupy a bunch of targeted positions. And so I would love it if folks were doing that on behalf of those, you know, um, I keep saying the word position, but on those, those positions as well, because it's just literally, I cannot do this without other humans basically who know way more than me. Um, and yeah, I'm just so grateful to be constantly in, in that work. Again, I'm trying to run back into that burning building all the time of this of this discomfort because, you know, it was sort of laid out for me. I certainly have there's like tension. There's tension about this even within my own nuclear family. You know, there's um, you know, I just I, it, it's constant. So I don't really feel like I have a choice but to continue to engage these subjects again by kind of running back into the tension. And then and then, of course, like there's all these words for what we do now, which is like take care of ourselves and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, it's a balance. And I'm grateful that I get to learn how to do that all the time because I sure don't know. I don't know. Like when we're in this position, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like there's there's some kind of knowing that I might have. That's just why you asked me to come talk today to you and to whoever your listeners are. But I really have no idea. I'm just this is just my experience <laughs> And, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on pretty much anything, but I just wrote a book and, you know, it felt great and I'm writing another one and that, that's pretty much what I know. Yeah, no, but I, no, I like, I like, I appreciate the humility, but I think, um, you know, the story that you've told and the life that you've led and the way that you've rendered this and all the scholarly work that went into it and then is integrated into it is a valuable service, not just for people who might share some of your experiences and might identify in similar ways or uh, anything like that, but also for people like me, you know, who are coming at this with massive blind spots. Like, like there's a part of me, whenever I have somebody on the show who's identity or, you know, sexual or racial identity or life experience really diverges from mine in ways that are complicated. Um, 
it can be as the uh, as the interviewer, you know, it can add a level of panic because <laughs> I'm so I'm so aware of how little I know um, around this stuff. So I just find uh, books like yours a relief, you know, and the proper education. And so I, mm. I appreciate the fact that you wrote it. And I think it's important for people listening who might be in a similar situation to me to realize that this book is very much for them too. You know, I think sometimes there can be uh, this sense that it's for a specific community or something like that. And um, I don't know, the way that you wrote it in particular makes it accessible. Um, and I very much appreciate it. Well, thank you. You can't see me, but I'm smiling about that because I definitely, that was definitely something, you know, I don't know of any writer who's like, especially a writer in like a marginalized subject position who's like, I only want to be on the LGBT shelf, you know, like, I don't know anybody that thinks that. Right. Um, obviously, I'm super grateful to inhabit that shelf because boy, did I freaking need to look on that shelf and pull stuff out of there and learn and grow and feel whole because of it. And at the same time, you know, I don't, I look at the essays shelf and I'm like, are the, the creative, you know, creative nonfiction shelf or the autobiography shelf. And I'm like, huh, you know, why are some books over there and not over here, you know? So I am super excited when in your personal uh, lexicon, it landed on the autobiography shelf, you know, and you, you picked it up and I, I love that. Or maybe it did land on the queer world shelf and you got it anyway. But, you know, I definitely think, um, like I told you, the guy and the nurse in the hospital and I had the best time and, you know, he, he was great. And when he said, you know, he was like literally ripping my little pick out. And when he was ripping that thing out, he was like, somebody came in and they were like, what you doing? And he was like, I'm waxing ever, you know, I'm waxing his arm, you know, about me. And I was just like, Oh, like, I love this guy. And, you know, I think Claudia Rankin describes it really well that like in um, I believe it's in Citizen, but she's basically saying that in her experience as a person who occupies the world as black, um, that when or I, I shouldn't actually be giving her poems a subject position because I don't think she's the speaker of each poem. But basically the speaker of her poems is articulating that it's like sticking a hand out to to somebody and then that person, because of bias or what have you pulls their hand back and I really do experience it like that all the time I would love to shake your hand you know what I mean like I'm I'm not trying to go about the world in in a way that's um, alienating for me I would love to be um, feel like I'm I'm belonging and I'm part of and that I'm safe wherever I go uh, that would feel amazing. And so, yeah, like this sharing of cultural experience is is so cool because this is my this is definitely my experience. And so for for someone in a different sub subject position to want to digest it and explore what it means for them, I'm very grateful for that. And, you know, you talk about this this male nurse in the hospital during your you know appendix episode and you talked about having I believe you referred to it as an aberrant body. Sure. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you write about, um, you know, the breast removal surgery that you had in, I believe, Canada. Yeah, uh, we call it top surgery. Top surgery. Yeah. Forgive me. Yes. Forgive me. So, no worries. Yep. Uh, um, but I, I'm, I'm curious about that, like the decision um, to do that. That's a big decision, you know, to, to have top surgery. And that's a it seems like a major surgery, right? It was. And, yep. but you know, then, you know, you, you go through it, you make that decision, which, you know, requires a certain leap and some courage. And especially if you have any kind of 
fear of doctors or knives, <laughs> you know, like as I might. Um, but then also like to move through the world, um, you know, post-surgery, um, you know, like you say, in medical situations, it can be particularly fraught sometimes, but like, has that been a, a major adjustment? And do you have like for people listening who might have like little familiarity with that or who might be considering it? Like, do you have thoughts that might help illuminate? Um, I mean, certainly things are very different. Like this, this could be like an hour itself for sure about just the changes that have been made and the medical aspects of it and like the complicatedness of systems again involved in bodies and, you know, all this stuff. So we can talk about this for a really long time. Um, but actually what was cool and, and I'm not going to completely sidestep your question, but, um, but the only reason I am gendering my friend the nurse is because we had a great conversation toward the end of me being in there where he was like you know I feel like I'm sometimes very confused because my girlfriend is like the like at home like building this like thing in our like they, I guess he has like a airstream that like needed like building out or something and he was like she's in there like with the power tools and I actually want to cook like a souffle and I was giving him tips on where to go shopping in the area like there's like a beautiful you know there's great places to go get like vegetables and I was explaining that and he was like sometimes I just feel like you know maybe I'm not enough in that way but I realize that I am you know and I was just like yes man you know because it really these again these categories really don't I don't I'm gonna be real I don't know if they fit any any of us really um so when I'm occupying a body that in my in my sense is like this sort of I explained in the book is like almost like a Rubik's Cube thing um, where it's like not really a Rubik's Cube I was talking about this like toy that no one else seems to have ever heard of I literally had it though I'm not making this up I had it and it was like you could just change the bodies on the thing and um, you know I still feel you know I don't know I don't know I just Personally, um, this question also hits different uh, for me today than it would have a year or two ago. I had a friend pass away, actually, from having top surgery, and that has never happened in my life of knowing people who've had this surgery or other trans-related surgeries. But, um, yeah, I think I would be remiss if I just told you, you told on myself in that way that I'm ha I have a lot of feelings now about about this process, but not at all about um, the desire to and the deservingness of of surgical uh, transformation because, you know, people do it all the time. I have other friends who are not trans who get all kinds of surgeries. My brother might need wisdom teeth surgery. You know, like there's just all kinds of – he actually doesn't need it, but he's thinking about getting it. Or even, you know, my the, the potential appendix – surgery not those those last two aren't cosmetic quote unquote but i don't i wouldn't necessarily put put trans surgery in that category either and you know donna haraway does a great job of writing about how we're all cyborgs so why you know why why um uh you know question breast augmentation in terms of breast enhancement versus a top surgery where there's like male chest contouring like why why give one a green light and the other you have to have a letter from a psychiatric professional saying that you are gonna go all the way and you're gonna be a man now or whatever um so yeah this is a really complex subject and i almost didn't write about it honestly just because it 
um, sometimes it gets the, you know, it gets the highlight in terms of what people want to, it's the kind of the juicy stuff about trans bodies that people want. Mm -hmm. Um, but my hope was that what I was doing was more articulating just the experience of, of, um, of my, I mean, really, honestly, I wanted to talk about what it felt like to no longer be that kid who, um, like I write in the book, my, my family like called me boober, like boobats or whatever. Like I literally, it was partially about coming from my grandmother who operates as a brown woman in the world, like to take off that part of her that had been, um, on me somehow. And I, and the weirdness of that, like I wanted to just, I wanted to just articulate that sort of complexity without necessarily highlighting transness as like this cyborgian thing because it not it isn't necessarily it's very like you know I love what Eli Clare says um, Eli Clare is a a writer who writes at the intersection of transness and disability and he talks about it beautifully in a bunch of his work but he talks about instead of saying like this is normal is like saying this is familiar and so this experience is very familiar to a lot of people and so um yeah just noting it as familiar whether or not in anyone's lexicon or anyone's conception it is normal well, and I think too, just like the under, like underscoring the fun, like like you said, there's like a fundamental strangeness to, like, what is the description? You have this great description of like your breasts in like a biohazard bag in a fluorescently lit room. <laughs> um, yeah, and, it's weird. And it makes, but yeah, it makes me think of like, wow, like you think of it, like you drive by any hospital on any given day, and there's all kinds of stuff going in and out of that place, like body parts and people and you know full bodies you know it's just it's a it's a uh a fundamentally strange scenario deeply it's very weird to have a body for sure um and then the last thing i want to ask you which we've been touching on as we've gone through is the the issue of like scholarly research and the integration of that research into the writing itself and it's kind of a nerd question, but I think people listening who are working on books or might aspire to write books of a similar ilk, especially would be interested to hear you talk about is like, like how you find the books and like whether you read them and then decide to write, or if some question presents itself in the writing that then leads you to go seek out a book. And if that's the case, like what's the process? I know a lot of this comes down to like intuition and there's like a certain breadcrumb trail that exists from book to book. Like, you know, you might be reading one book and it'll lead you to three others, but do you see what I'm getting at? Like I, I'm interested to know how you find the right material to integrate. Absolutely. I love this question. It always makes me super happy when people ask me this because um, I just get to, I get to give a shout out to Goddard college because <laughs> Goddard is such a trippy place and I went there as an undergrad and I got I got to go back I did now teach there as well and like the um I went to seven different undergraduate institutions and like had a very difficult time so Goddard actually like it was a, it's a long story how I got there and graduated but basically they were kind of my last house on the block and I have, I could not be more grateful for what I learned there and one of the things that I learned there was that when I feel a certain way, like it's usually like a very specific feeling. I love that you use the word intuition, but I really do end up having this kind of like 
burning desire level questioning about something. It could literally be anything. And sometimes it really comes out of left field. Um, but it, I, I have learned from Goddard that that feeling is sacred because as a student, what you're asked to do is to literally come up with what you're studying each semester. So you're supposed to make your own curriculum and you basically have like a coach. So that's sort of what I do when I'm there is I'm like a coach. I don't Pretty much like that's all I really see myself as in that sense. And that's what I experienced as a student as well. And what that experience taught me, because there are no like standardized classes or anything, it literally taught me that that burning desire thing inside or whatever. I don't know. These words always fail, I think, in the sense of like inside, outside. I have no idea. But anyway, this sense that is so the key for me personally that is literally the thing and i have grown this sense to the extent that now i like know its name basically when it's happening i'm like oh there you are okay here's our next project and thank god because that really is the fulcrum for how my particular way of working um manifests like without this understanding i think i'd, I'd still be wonder i'd be like I came from a journalism background and in that world, like, you know, you get assignments and I used to love that. I was like, give me an assignment. Okay. Like I'm for some reason writing about being on the ferry out, out of Red Hook, like going to Ikea. Like I was like writing about like that journey. That was like my assignment that day. Or like I was supposed to like, I was, a, I had a really kind of odd and fun experience being like a very disheveled reporter when I was uh, 20 and had no money in New York. And I kept getting to go to like fashion week and like report on like Donna, K like just random stuff like that. And I would get my assignment and I was supposed to just go execute. And it was so fun to do that. But at a certain point, my work expanded and I no longer had someone telling me this is your assignment. And so I'm so grateful to learn what it feels like to give one to myself. So, you know, and I just, I try to constantly have a really wide range of people that I'm reading from. Mostly I hang out with people that also occupy marginalized positions and works that don't always get out there. I do a lot of um, research into different ways to have access to writing that, you know, I love to read zines. I love to read, um, you know, things from small presses. And I was just taught all that in a lot of ways at Goddard. I hate to give it all to them, but you know, them plus my own development of my intuition around this has been just extremely fruitful. And yeah, the breadcrumb thing is exactly right. I mean, I have, I have like four stacks. I'm looking at my area right here and I have like one stack of books. I like really desperately want to like understand, but they're in French. And then I have this other stack that relates to this tornado project. And I've got, you know, I just have these stacks and it's just, I love it. I just like, I just literally cannot get enough of like reading material. And so it's my, it's my absolute happy place. And I just am so grateful for other writers and other books. And when, when my students come to me and they're super down or when I'm super down um, in terms of like, I'm kind of doubting myself or feeling incapable. I always remember that all these books like saved my life. These books made me who I am. And so it's it actually is a deeply worthwhile thing to put my thinking into a digestible form for others too because maybe someone needs it even just one person maybe like literally one human being needs this and if that's this efforting is for that person i will do it that's lovely that's a lovely sentiment and 
I'm going to drill down just a bit more because I, yeah, I I'm fascinated ahead. by this. But like when you talk about getting good at knowing what your next project is and how Goddard helped you cultivate this sense or intuition or whatever you're talking about, like to to apply it to an actual real life project. Like let's talk about like the tornado project. You. Okay go tornado chasing or like the idea to go tornado chasing occurs to you. And then maybe you just get to a level of obsession with the idea or you feel something physically. Like, how do you actually recognize when it's happening? Do you see what I'm saying? Like what, when does it? Yes. Yeah. That is a fabulous question. Cause I love the nuts and bolts of this. And like, it's totally, imp I love sharing this kind of, uh, yeah, like toolkit. So basically, um, I notice that I like want it like there's a desire sense and yeah it might be like there might be a located spot in the actual in my actual physical like chest or something or my throat or you know I'm not I I have someone I'm someone that is like newly inhabiting my body in a sense so I mean some of these more somatic terms might be more like I don't know readily available to others but I feel like you know my whole life is about kind of making it my way into this body to experience these things versus like I don't know going somewhere else but um but basically I do notice that there's like a desire and there's like a little seed but it's kind of that feeling of like oh my god I actually really do want this and I personally have always been taught that I am literally not supposed to do anything I ever want to do <laughs> <laughs> so I've had to do a lot of unlearning about the fact that literally there's only one me in the entire universe as far you know me maybe meaning like this particular exact incarnation of maybe this energy that's made all these other humans basically we're all the same who knows but anyway there's only one quote-unquote me who is wanting this thing and just like anything else it is actually valuable because it's really magic to experience and share something that is again like um happening in a unique way maybe just so that i can be helpful to again like one other person so here's another way to put that because i feel like that was a little bit um clunky the way i was trying to articulate that but basically i do have a sense and it does feel like that feeling of like okay i really want um I don't know. I like really, I, there was the time that I really wanted a dog like really bad and it didn't even really make a lot of sense. I mean, and so of course I had to wait until the conditions were more right, but I literally know I, I really love sharing my home and my energy with a fuzzy just being. I love this creature that I live with now and I want like 10 of them, but I know, you know, again, like the conditions are not right to have 10 of this creature so i have one of this creature but that desire is so like pure and amazing kind of like you were talking about that um the little kid that was uh experiencing themselves in this wonderful world of femininity like i no one told me to be a writer at all actually everyone told me not to so this desire that was in like came into my being when i was super little it like literally came from nowhere like my grandma just the other day was saying you know she was telling me I was three. I, I I think she's being generous there. I don't know. But she was saying I was, like, making little books. I mean, actually, it is true. I have these little books I made when I was super little. And I was always alone and making, like, random 
written projects that was like all I ever did I had very I had like no friends and I just made like newsletters and I made like poem (laughs) books and all this stuff no one told me to do that so that that came with this package I don't even get it so if I actually don't honor that I'm missing something so the same sense of like this is what I really want comes in and I try to honor it and just give it space. And when I do that, it all just un- it accordions out. That's a lovely way, I think, to to say it and a great place for us to wrap up. Um, congratulations. You're making me want to go to Goddard College. I'll tell you that. I'm going to go there. Yay! They can They can help me cultivate my intuition or whatever. But... Congratulations. It's true. Yeah. Congratulations to you on uh, the book. Congratulations. And best of luck, I guess, on the reparations book and the tornado book. You have two? Or, is that right? I was not writing a book on reparations, but maybe I should. Oh, okay. Okay. I thought you had. Yeah. Maybe that'll be uh, something that. No, manifests. actually, that was a literal material project, not a book project. Ah, okay. What does that mean, literal material project? Like, it, well, I guess books are literal and material, but I'm actually working on. Um, being a liaison for a land give back here in Maine. Ah, okay. Well, nevertheless, best of luck on that too. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time and energy in this conversation. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. Okay. That is Emerson Whitney. His new memoir is called Heaven. Available now from McSweeney's. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle there is at Emerson Whitney underscore. The book, again, is called Heaven. It's a memoir. It is earning rave reviews. Go get your copy immediately. If you want to send in a photo of uh, where you listen, we're doing a new thing for the Other People podcast on social media. Hashtag where I listen. You can send a photo in. You can DM the show on Twitter or on Instagram. You can also email me at letters at otherppl.com. Reach out. Take a picture of wherever you are so we can see where you listen you can include a selfie too if you want it's not a you know it's not mandatory but just let's connect let's make this human the other people podcast is offered freely all episodes of this program more than 660 episodes and counting are all available for free it's all free it's a listener supported show if you would like to support the show if you're in a position to do that you can throw a couple bucks in the hat over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you like the program and you can support the program, it's a good thing to do. If you want to write to me again, the, the uh, email address is letters at other PPL.com. It's also great. And it helps the show. If you can rate it and review it over at uh, Apple podcasts or wherever you listen, rate and review the show. It takes a few seconds. The Other People podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It, too, is free. It's a great way to listen. Go get the app wherever you get your apps. Coming up next on the Other People podcast, a great conversation with David Goodwillie. I've been meaning to talk to him for a long time. Got that done. Very excited about it. Stay tuned for David Goodwillie next time on the Other People podcast. Don't forget to register to vote. Make a plan to vote. Vote early. Protect your vote. Don't let anybody take your vote. This is the United States of America. We're a democracy. We should be, anyway. Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) 